Hello, hello, and thanks for tuning into episode 42 of the Eyes Free Sports podcast. This is your host, Greg Lindbergh. Here on episode 42 of Eyes Free Sports, we are chatting with a very talented uh, runner, triathlete, marathoner, and Ironman competitor uh, who's also done a lot of great work in accessibility for several different companies. So let's get running here with episode 42. So my guest on this episode of Eyes Free Sports is Dave Wilkinson, and Dave is a very accomplished uh, marathoner, triathlete, uh, has competed in Ironman events, and uh, really has a great story to share with us uh, here on this episode. Dave, welcome to Eyes Free Sports. Great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Definitely. Really looking forward to diving in, and like we were just chatting about before we started here, uh, a lot of cool stuff to, to get into, so really excited to have you. Well, thank you. I, I, I should point out at the beginning that when we get into all this stuff, that I'm not great at any of this stuff. I'm very average or middle of the pack. So uh, <laughs> as we're discussing a lot of this stuff, I'm far from up there with the winners, but it's, it's, it's still a good time. Oh, yeah. And hey, I feel like just having competed in a lot of these events and activities, I mean, you're a winner in my eyes, you know, not to to use the inspiration word at all but uh <laughs> you're a cool guy let's just say that if that's fair <laughs> no, that, that sounds reasonable to me okay awesome uh, so first dave just let's start off uh just talk to me about where you were born and your childhood i was born in eastern arkansas about well actually i was born in fayetteville but only lived there for a brief period of time. I grew up in eastern Arkansas, which is about 50, my hometown was about 50 miles west of Memphis. It was a town of about 13,000 people. It was pretty rural. There was a field behind my house that had a soybean or cotton or other farm stuff growing at different points that we flew kites and played army and had a good time. I'm number three out of four kids. Only person out of the bunch with a visual with a visual impairment. I'm a Lieber's congenital amaurosis kid, so it had never popped up in our family before. You know, all the genes have to line up just right, and uh, the numbers popped up for me. Gotcha. And then, uh, at what age? Uh, how old were you when it was you know discovered uh, as far as your visual impairment? My visual impairment. It's sort of a complicated and not complicated question, I guess. My mom figured out something was going on pretty early on when I was an infant. I, I was interested in things, but I wasn't tracking things. And she came up to the playpen with one of my favorite toys, and I wasn't paying any attention to her or the toy until she shook it. Hmm. And so she started to suspect that there was something that was really wrong with my vision. And so she followed it up by taking a lamp you know, or a light and shining it at me. And my eyes didn't, you know, I didn't jump away from the light. My eyes didn't it stay dilated. And so at that point, she knew that there was something significant with my vision, you know, which resulted in eye doctors and all that kind of good stuff. The more complicated part of it was that levers hadn't been discovered yet. And so for the tw first 20 some odd years of my life, my vision loss was just chalked up as unexplained birth defect, hmm. which it, you know, it's just kind of a bizarre diagnosis. First effects aren't that specific. Um, they're not, right. they're, they're, they're not grenades, they're bombs, you know? And so it was almost a, with a sense of relief to finally figure out in my mid twenties, exactly what it was that was going on. Gotcha. I just Very had to wait interesting. For the, I had to wait for the disease to be invented. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That's, that is unusual for sure. And uh, so then did you have, you know, some usable vision at one point or just talk to me about kind of your, your visual spectrum over time? My visual spectrum has been virtually non-existent. I, I use the heck out of any vision that I've got, but it has always been less than finger count on, you know, eye charts. I can tell a difference in vision over time. There are things that it, it's either a difference in vision or maybe it's a difference in maturity. True. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I can remember in my twenties, you know, late twenties, early thirties, rollerblading and following somebody on a bicycle. There's no way I would even attempt to do that now. And I'm assuming that's because I have trouble seeing the bicycle. Although, you know, as we said, it might just be because I grew up and discovered that that's not a particularly smart thing to do for me. Um, but yep. the easiest way to describe my vision is that if I see it, I'm probably going to hit it. 
I see. I see. Makes sense. And then in terms of your education, talk to me about your, your high school years, your college years. I, I went to a school for the blind through 10th grade. Uh, and this was, you know, back in the late 70s, early 80s, when that was pretty much how most blind students were, were educated. I came home for my last two years of high school and went to school in my local high school, which was after really essentially not growing up at home for a, a lot of your academic life, uh, makes a heck of an impression on you. It was wonderful to wake up in my own room and be able to walk to school. It was about a mile from our house. And uh, I, had, I probably walked to school, unless the weather was just terrific, just, just about every day of my junior and senior years. When college rolled around, my parents and I had very different ideas of what I should be doing. I wanted to get the hell out of Arkansas uh, <laughs> and uh, see something else and be somewhere totally not Arkansas. And they weren't entirely unsupportive of that, but they really thought that in the beginning I should go to school relatively close to home. And we ended up having this weird sort of negotiated compromise where I agreed to go to a school that was a little over 100 miles away from my folks for a year. At the end of that year, I could drop out with no questions asked and no repercussions, but I was responsible for what came next. And I had to have a rational plan in place for sort of what, what I was going to do next. And uh, that sounded like a decent deal to me. And so I went to college for a year and then dropped out about 10 minutes after my last final and uh, hmm. had met as part of a workshop and a panel that I was on, I met someone who knew a guy who knew Iceland's one and only piano tuner. And <laughs> I learned how to tune wow. pianos. And uh, this guy was like, you know, he might want cheap labor. And I'm like, I'm good for cheap labor. And I <laughs> called him up. I'm like, I'd love to move to Iceland and work for you. Give me somewhere to live and some food and it's a deal. And uh, so I essentially dropped out of college to move to Iceland and tune pianos, which uh, <laughs> fell into the rational things to do next classification. As far as my folks were concerned, they had always said, if you have a chance to travel, go do it. So that sounded good to them. When I came back to the U.S., I, I stayed in New York for several days with a friend of my mom's, uh, Kay Farrell, whom mom, my mom had done some work with on a board uh, when NAPI was being formed by the National Association for Parents and Visually Impaired, which she, my mom was involved in the when it, when it initially formed. And hmm. uh, Kay showed me around New York, and I fell in love with the city and pretty much decided on the spot after seeing Washington Square Park and maybe a couple of rooms of one building that NYU was the place for me. And uh, I was able to put yeah, I was, I was offered a decent enough financial aid package to pay for the beginnings of it and landed a full-time job at NYU and uh, ended up working there full-time and going to school uh, doing tuition remission until I finished my undergrad and then ended up doing graduate work there as well and uh, really fell in love with the city and still have a uh, New York holds, holds a special place with me. It was, it was extraordinarily good to me and NYU was extraordinarily good to me. And I, I grew up a lot there. Wow. Yeah. Quite a transition, you know, first off going to Iceland and, and New York and pretty interesting, uh, you know, how life happens, right? <laughs> it, it really is. It's, uh, you know, you, you, if there's anything that my fam my parents always really told all of us that if, you know, to, to reach for things, uh, I, my mom was standing next to me when this guy broached the whole idea of Iceland. And she was like, you know, this is just weird enough that it might happen. And I'm like, sounds good to me. Let's make a phone call. And my <laughs> folks were always kind of like that. They, they always told me and my siblings to go for it, to, you know, there, there, there's no reason that you shouldn't see what will happen, you know, just sort of see where you end up. Exactly. Yeah. And then I know you mentioned uh, as far as working at NYU, I was curious, what kind of work did you do at the university there? I did clerical work there. I worked this I worked most of the time when I was working there, I worked a graveyard shift. I worked midnight to eight and I did clerical stuff that wasn't done in the daytime uh, hmm. in residence halls. And so I would go to class in the 
I, tr I tried to have my classes either in early morning or early evening uh, so that I could sleep and uh, <laughs> I'd get off of work and either go to class or I'd go home and sleep and yep. come back into the city and go to class. And it was kind of, it was kind of an odd existence for a couple of years until I got and had different hours. It never quite seemed normal to, to get up at, you know, at 11 in the evening, have your breakfast bowl of cereal, you know, and be to work at midnight. <laughs> it was a little strange. <laughs> Ted Koppel yep. was sort of, it was like, it's time to get up. Ted Koppel's on. <laughs> <laughs> yep, as opposed to the, to the Today Show or, you know, yeah. Good Morning America. Or <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, Interesting. Oprah was awesome for going to sleep. She could put me to sleep like nothing else. Um, <laughs> It's, it just sort of twists things around a little bit. <laughs> wow. Very interesting. And then I know you have done uh, a lot of work in assistive technology in your career. And I guess if you just want to summarize, you know, perhaps the different companies you work for, uh, highlights, any positions that have really stood out to you or are memorable. Basically, if you're a company out there and I haven't worked for you yet, it's, it's your loss. Um, I've, <laughs> I've worked for most of the major assistive technology companies. I, I was a, a regional sales manager for Freedom Scientific for a few years. I can't remember what my title was at Humanware. I did a lot of product training and actually got to do some relatively extensive travel with Humanware and ended up in like Guam and Micronesia and such places. And it, it was hmm. kind of exotic. I was the national training manager for the folks at HIMSS uh, for a number of years. Uh, I worked for in between for a local distributor of various assistive technology pieces at different points. I've done training for folks like ITG. So I've done a lot of different stuff over the years. I don't, I don't have much of an attention span and I get bored really easily. At least that's my excuse. And so I've just sort of you know, done whatever fit at the time that uh, that worked in well for me. As far as really, I guess, being proud of things, I was really, I, I was really proud of some of the work that I did at Hems in at that point, sort of bringing them, I thought, into a position of more prominence than they had been before I got there. Uh, I got to do a lot with product development there, worked on things like the Braille Sense Polaris, and was there at the beginning stages of things like the Q Braille and got to have a lot of input on how a product was developed and it was it was very gratifying. So, you know, I, I think if there's anything that I was really proud of, I'm, I'm not unproud of anything I've done over the years, but that really stood out for me as something that was really fun to get involved in uh, as far as, you know, the, the more the development side of the products. Exactly, yeah. And I would imagine you've witnessed, you know, such a change in technology over the course of time and just how, how lucky we really are you know, these days to have such amazing assistive tech out there. I have a VersaBraille 2 in my basement. Uh, the VersaBraille 2 was the first piece of assistive technology I ever owned. I was lucky enough to have one when I went to college. It had an astounding mm. 32K of RAM or, or, or of storage <laughs> space, totally. Uh, wow. Came in at about 14 pounds. You could strap that sucker on as a backpack and you might get two and a half hours of battery life out of it. And it was awesome. I found one on eBay a couple of years ago and I bought it and uh, it just sort of sits there down in my basement as a time capsule of sort of where we've come from. Wow. Very cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, uh, yeah. to, to give you an idea of sort of how unstable the, the and, and this is no knock against the VersaBraille for all you telesensory people, but I, I was a huge Ozzy Osbourne fan when I was in, in high school and, you know, Ozzy was famous at that point for eating bats and the VersaBraille would eat files. So its name was Ozzy because um, it would just devour those suckers. I um, like it. Yep. So, <laughs> wow. Yes, we've come we've, we've come an awful long way. No doubt. Yep. And then as far as your family, I understand you're married and have a son, correct? Yeah, I'm married and I've got a kid who's finished college and he's now working as a PE coach. Uh, and uh, we're going to get to see him in the next couple of days. He's living in Arkansas at this point, ironically, after fighting to get out of Arkansas for years and years. I met my wife at a, uh, at a CSUN technology conference. Um, I was living outside of Boulder 
and she lived in, of course, Arkansas. And so I ended up moving back to Arkansas to give the relationship a chance. And obviously it worked. And uh, we lived there for a number of years before moving to Kentucky. So after fighting for years and years to leave Arkansas, I got sucked right back in. <laughs> you yep, always got to come home, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> yep. Yep. Very cool. Uh, so as far as sports and athletics, uh, talk to me about any kind of sports, anything you played, uh, you know, formally as a child or when was kind of your first introduction to sports and recreation? Gosh, we were growing up in sort of rural America. I mean, I grew up outside when I turned four. I remember getting my first pair of skates. We would skate around the neighborhood and there were a lot of sidewalks, which worked out really well for me. Um, my dad got a tandem bike from somewhere that we had for years and years. My, my parents drew the line at me riding bikes in the street, which makes sense. Um, but the, the tandem bike sort of took care of that. We could ride that rascal all over the place. And, uh, you know, so there there were various informal, you know, games of tag or chase or, you know, whatever, uh, from when I was a little kid. Uh, I got involved in wrestling when I was in third grade and wrestled for a number of years when I was at the school for the blind. I, uh, oh, cool. the last couple of years I was there, I also ran track, which I was abysmal at. I'm not a fast runner. Uh, <laughs> that's why I'm interested in distance. I'm, I'm not speedy. Uh, but I did it right. to get in shape for, for wrestling and had a couple of decent days of track where the track was wet and the people in front of me fell. And because I'm pokey, I didn't. So I beat them. Um, so, <laughs> you know, uh, yep. But I, I, no one has ever looked at me and said, wow, that guy's really fast. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. Um, and then I, I, I went through a long phase when I was in college and when I was first starting out in my professional career, where I, I, I didn't work out a whole lot. I was a, I was a smoker at that point. I was an asthmatic smoker, so I'd smoke until my lungs gave out, and then I'd Oof. let them heal up a little bit, and I'd light back up again, and we'd go through this whole routine all over again. So yep. I, I don't particularly recommend it, uh, but it, you know, it's, it's just this weird sort of hamster wheel. Um, <laughs> I was at a national convention, one of the consumer conventions. Uh, I was about to turn 30. And I ran into someone who introduced me to the, to the folks at Ski for Light. And uh, skiing seemed like a reasonable way to turn 30. Uh, this was before I was working in the assistive technology industry. I was running a, a college at American University. And for reasons that were never adequately explained to me, a fitness center had been put in the basement of the building that I ran. I never did understand what budget line it came out of or how it got there or whatever. But since it was in my building, I was in charge of running the thing and I staffed it. And uh, then the student staff wouldn't show up and they'd call me and I was spending a lot of time in this friggin' fitness center that I didn't want any part of. And I figured if I was going to be down there, I may as well use the equipment. And sure. then I got interested in this whole possibility of skiing, of doing cross-country skiing to turn 30. And I really just sort of threw myself into it and decided that I, I couldn't be an embarrassment uh, on skis. I had to look like I you know, had some sort of athletic prowess. And uh, I really never stopped working out after that and uh, fell in love with cross-country skiing. I uh, still love to cross-country ski. When I moved back to Arkansas, when I met my wife, uh, skiing wasn't exactly a viable thing to do in in arkansas i mean i guess you could do roller skiing but that looked a little more dangerous than i wanted there's just something wrong with taking elongated roller blades and ski poles and zooming down asphalt hills that's just <laughs> has danger stamped on it oh yeah no and question so I, and so at that point i got into running uh and didn't do anything uh formally with running until i Signed up for a 5K. I was getting close to 40 by this point. And uh, my guide for the 5K ended up being this guy named Jacob Wells, who 
was just a force of nature. Jacob and I went on to become just extraordinarily good friends. And somewhere in between about miles two and three of that 5K, it was like, hey, we should do a marathon. Like, I, hmm. you know, it might be kind of fun to guide someone through a marathon. Let's start training for one. And he had done close to 30 marathons at that point. So I figured he knew what he was doing. And that sounded good for me, good to me. So I, I marked turning 40 by running the Little Rock Marathon and uh, ran a spectacular marathon. I've never come within 14 minutes of that time ever again. I have no idea what happened that day, but it was, it was an astounding time that I never came close to again. But, uh, and, and then just sort of kept running. And I've gotten to do a number of marathons over the years, you know, in, in different parts of the country and have used running as a way to, I think, decompress at the end of the day. A lot of my professional life had me doing extensive travel for a long period of time. And so by the end of the day, people don't necessarily believe this, but I'm by nature an introvert. And wow. <laughs> by the, at the end of the day, I'm tired and I'm, I'm, I needed a break from people. And so I would go to my fitness center and I would just run for a while. Um, yeah. you know, and, uh, it, 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 it just sort of helped put, the, put things back in perspective and it still does. I still work out later in the day so that I can think about the day as I'm sweating, you know, at this point as I'm swimming or biking or doing whatever I'm doing, and it, it, I'd look back on the day and just try to make sense out of it all. Right. Very interesting. And I know you did mention, uh, your guide, Jacob, I understand, you know, he, he was your guide for many years there. And uh, unfortunately passed away from what I understand. But just thinking back to that, that relationship as far as, you know, working with your guide, what would you say the keys are to having a successful guide in terms of, you know, being a blind or visually impaired athlete? Absolute trust and being willing to hand over without any exaggeration, your life to another human being and knowing that it's in capable hands. When Jacob and I ran together and, and um, to, to fill in a little bit of the story, Jacob died in his 153rd marathon. He essentially ran mm. himself into an enlarged heart, which ended up killing him, which was a, a huge loss for me. Uh, not so much from the, from, the, from the whole guiding bit, but just from losing a, a fellow kindred spirit and, a, and a, just a, a, a soulmate on the planet. Jacob was an idiot. Um, he would say or do anything, and it was fabulous. Um, mm -hmm. We got ourselves into all kinds of scrapes but i knew through all of it that we were gonna that we were gonna be fine i mean we he would take infinite pleasure in doing things like we would wear the, you know i'd wear this little visually impaired sign and so we would snap pictures of me wearing my little visually impaired you know little vest thing in front of high voltage signs and such things <laughs> it was stupid uh, but we had a really good time with it um it was very yeah. irreverent we both were stuck in about eighth grade uh, as far as just our, our general development, and it worked out very well. But I, I, to get back to your question, I don't have a problem. It's much easier for me to trust a guide than it probably is to trust a lot of other situations, and I have no idea why that is. But you end up literally just putting your, your faith into another person, and you assume that they've got skin in the game. Uh, they don't want anything bad to happen to you because they're going to feel really crappy if it does. And it's I've uh, I've never really had trouble developing that sense of trust with a, a lot of people, and maybe that's just maybe that's because Jacob was such an, an awesome guide in the beginning to get me started with all of this stuff. Um, hmm. I have done things where I got hurt over the years. I've skied into a few trees. Um, <laughs> one case where it had could have been potentially pretty bad um i was ski i was we were skiing in race conditions and uh my my guide had, was out of range and when that happens you're supposed to sit and instead i was trying to find where he was and we think what happens is i saw a tree and figured that must be my guide and i skied right for it um oh geez so, <laughs> <laughs> you know um so you have to go into these things your guide is never going to keep you from you can't expect your guide to keep you from getting hurt. That That's not going to happen. But what your guide will do is give you all the information that they can so that you can make informed decisions and so that your chances of something happening to you are closer to the same as 
anyone else who's out there. Right. Yeah, that's that's great perspective right there. No question. I'm also curious, and we'll we'll definitely get into as far as triathlons, uh, your Ironman Ironman competitions that you've done. Uh, in terms of a tether, I know there's several you know different opinions on a tether in terms of a blind runner or even a swimmer uh, and his or her guide. And I'm curious how you've handled that. What kind of tethers would you use? What do you recommend? I put a lot of research and thought into what I use for tethers for running. And that research consisted of going to Kmart. This is back when we still had Kmart, buying a giant roll of clothesline and hacking off pieces of it. Um, <laughs> and, and I used that roll for years and years. And when it finally ran out, I, I and now I have sort of my some of my favorite tethers, which I don't know how you get favorite pieces of rope, but I've managed to do it. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I do try to stick to the, you know, about 20 inches apart, um, which seems like a good distance. But, um, you know, I'm still using these beat up pieces of clothesline. <laughs> um, <laughs> a friend of mine drew on one of them. So it's got all these weird sort of highlight lines that are running around that, that have gotten smeared over the years from sweat and being washed and everything else. It probably looks like crap and I don't care. I, it, it's a great tether. Um, yeah, whatever works. Sort of my favorite piece of rope. So I, that's about all the research I ever did as far as tethers. Um, I do believe in, and this this isn't directly the question, but it, in, in sort of adding on to that, I I do believe in using the little visually impaired orange vests. And I'm trying to think where I got mine. Um, racing, ReliableRacing.com. Um, hmm. and it just says visually impaired and my guide, you know, that I'm the person I'm running with usually wears one and I'm not convinced that people can actually read them, but the orange sort of sticks out and it lets people know to, to, to be aware. And I, I, I think that's fair to your fellow racers or when we're running out on a trail and you're like on, you know, just a jogging path or whatever, to let someone know that there's something dis- different about this situation. And again, even if they can't figure out what it is, the, the orange just sort of gives them the flag to be careful. And that's, I, th- I think, just a safety thing. Uh, and so I'm, I'm all in favor of using the little, and I know some people really don't want to, they don't want to stand out, whatever. And I'd rather stand out and be able to walk away than potentially get hurt. Um, so I, so I'm, I'm a big fan of, of, of using the, the guided visually impaired vests. Right. I guess you could say it's almost similar to, you know, people that don't want to use a white cane. They don't want to be identified. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's important just for your safety. It is, you know, and it's not really that big of a thing, uh, you know, in the long run. And when you get your fellow runners get to know you, there's certainly nothing wrong with people getting out of your way. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yep. But you were asking about the swimming, and the swimming bit has been an ongoing deal. We're using bungee cords at the moment. Um, my hmm. current uh, triathlon guide also found a tether somewhere online that we've been playing with, mo- the, uh, modifying that has like actual, almost like a resistance band cord between two belts. And the belts are really comfortable, so it's a lot more comfortable than just tying bungee cord around your waist. But the tether is a little long, so we've been tinkering with tying knots in it to make it shorter before we actually just do surgery on the thing and hack out a chunk of the cord and tie it together in the middle. Uh, <laughs> so the swimming has still been a work in progress. We've tried various things and there's a college student that I swim with every Monday night in the Ohio uh, where we've tried different lengths of bungee cord and we've tried a bunch of, you know, just different stuff over the years. And I think what we finally gotten to is having around two feet between us, which is, I think what other triathlons, I think like the Olympic triathlons, they want you to have like 20, 22 inches, whatever it is between you. It is an human beings. We're not meant to swim tied together. Uh, (laughs) That, you know, and it it is an art to learn how to, to, to swim uh, tied to someone else. And uh, for me, it is, it has been by far the hardest part of the triathlon. Hmm. Interesting. And a little creepy at times. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, I've never tried it myself, but I can definitely imagine that whole dynamic. <laughs> it, it, it is very strange. And, you know, just everything about being deprived of 
you know, another sense because you can't hear what's going on most of the time. You're relying on touch. You're relying on, you know, this cord as it pulls in different directions and stuff. And it, it is a very disconcerting experience. It has taken a lot to be able to do it. Um, for sure. So I, uh, you know, for all of you who are out there looking into triathlons, put, put some extra time into swimming. You're going to need it. Yeah, I know I was going to ask you about, uh, you know, the most challenging of, of the three. And it sounds like hands down, that's that's t- tops for you. Yeah, there's nothing even close. Gotcha. And in part, because I really didn't know how to swim before this. I, I could hmm. I could I could slog my way through water, but no one had ever looked at me and said, that guy's a swimmer because I wasn't. And so before I really could start to worry about the swimming part of this, I, I needed to learn some decent technique. So I was starting frightfully close to the beginning when it, when it came to swimming. So it, it started off being sort of, you know, the thing that was in the distance as far as, you know, this is going to be a lot to, to take on. And it's always, it's always maintained that status. Right, right. I know you were uh, in a very serious car accident at one point, and I believe it was, uh, was it right before you were supposed to do an Ironman event? It was right before it was the, this was actually the car accident ended up resulting in the whole idea of Ironman. The, the car crash was a couple of days before I was supposed to run in a, an annual marathon and little rock is run in memory of, of, of Jacob. And I was in a car that was broadsided by another car that uh, someone was asleep at the wheel and it ended up totaling four cars by the time they were done. And uh, I, I, fractured two vertebrae and injured two more in my neck and lost some feeling and motor control in my right hand and had a number of other things that happened as a result of it. One of the bigger things that happened with it is that I, I was working for the folks at Hims at that point, and I'd been traveling up to about 40 weeks out of the year. And one of the immediate things that happened is that I really needed to find something where I could stay closer to home. And, uh, it was just physically going to be difficult to to travel. And it's still not a whole lot of fun to travel to be sort of cooped up for long periods of time. It just, it just really hurts. Um, right. And so that really brought that phase of my professional life to a close. And I ended up doing some work with APH for a while. And in that context, I uh, was at dinner with someone in Toronto who was about my age and she Maybe normal people don't do this, but you're like, you're, you're having a conversation, but you're also kind of competing with, you know, oh, yeah, I've done all these great marathons. And she's like, oh, I just finished my first Ironman. Like, Damn it. You can do an Ironman. You're not in that much better shape than I am. I can do an Ironman. And it will be my ticket back to prove that I'm invincible, that I can go from having a broken neck to doing a friggin' Ironman. And so I'm going to do one. If she can do one, I can do it. Um, mm. And pretty much decided on the spot that I was going to do Louisville Ironman and had run a marathon with a guy who had been a professional triathlete at one point. And so I looked him up and called him up and it was like, I, I think, I think I want to be an Ironman and I want you to be my coach. And he was like, I'll do you one better. I'll also guide you for it. And it's like, yay, this is going to be easier than we thought. And, you know, then the, yeah. then the real work began. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the car crash had a lot. To, I've always had a secret uh, belief that I was somewhat, I would use the word invincible. Bad things just don't happen to me. Uh, and I, I try to tempt that on a regular basis. We were talking before the show about, you know, I've gone skydiving a number of times and bungee jumping and, have you know it's it, it, adrenaline adrenaline is good and I, I always come out on the other side and this car crash kind of pissed me off it was like if something's going to do me in it's not going to be a car crash uh hmm. there's got to be a more glorious way to you know to to bring things to an end there, it's no way it's going to be in a, in a, in a, in a car pileup and yeah. I, I didn't enjoy being immobile uh I didn't enjoy, you know, 
having had help putting my socks on and button shirts and all this kind of stuff for the months that followed the crash. And I really wanted to find a way to, to show that I was back. And Iron Man seemed ridiculous and absurd enough that it was worth taking on. Mm, it, it seemed utterly implausible. Therefore, it had to happen. Yeah, yeah. And I am curious, you know, in terms of your visual impairment versus having gone through that car accident, uh, you know, both obviously have presented adversity, you know, as, as visually impaired folks, we all deal with adversity, frustration at times, whatnot. Uh, would you say one of those, you know, was more challenging than the others to kind of get past? I am a fanatical reader. I love to read. I've loved to read since I was a kid. I, I have permanently lost some of the feeling in part of my right hand and reading hmm. has become very laborious. I can do it. I miss dots so that things like phone numbers, I, I at this point have to look at them really carefully or use speech or I've gotten much better at reading with my left hand. That by far was the hardest thing for me to to deal with. Um, I don't read well enough at this point to read out loud if I'm if I'm looking at something in Braille because I'm as I'm right. reading the words, I'm speaking the words. That was a real loss and that that hurt. It's not fatal. There are people that have had a lot worse happen to them and I still read Braille books. I just enjoy them for months longer than most people. Um, right. You know <laughs> um, <laughs> And, I, and at this point, I really can't read anything off of Braille paper. The lines close together make it really hard for me to stay on a line. So I use a refreshable Braille display. And, uh, you know, when we finish this interview later on this evening, I'll go back to reading a book that I just started last night. And I'll probably be still be reading this book at Halloween. Um, it, just, <laughs> it just takes a while. Sure, um, sure. So that was, you know, for someone who has worked around Braille products and has seen refreshable Braille evolve, uh, you know, it, that was uh, a, a, a little bit of a jolt and, and something to lose. Um, but at the same point, or at the same time, you know, refreshable Braille is what allows me to continue to read. So I, I'm very grateful to it. Right. Yep. And then just going back to the Iron Man, uh, so have you done multiple Iron Mans? Only done one. I did Louisville. I was just supposed one. to do one last year and, I really haven't figured it out yet, but so much stuff got canceled last year. I don't know what the big deal was, but it was um, really strange. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so I did Louisville and I'm and Louisville has since lost its Iron Man. Hmm. And so I'm training for one in Sacramento in October. I've done a number of other triathlons, uh, including, uh, half Ironman and I've got a couple more half Ironman on the schedule for this year before doing the full again in October. This may be the last time that I do a full Ironman. It's a huge time commitment. And when you're working and, you know, I'm, I'm today's a day off and it's my, my one day off a week. Most of the time yeah. after work, you've got a couple of hours or more of training that you're doing and weekends, you know, like this Saturday, my guide and I will meet up and we're going to play probably ride 60 or 70 miles. We're going to try to swim for a little over, in, over an hour uh, so that we can tinker with our whole little tether thing. And then we'll mix a run in with that. And that's going to, that will be Saturday. And then Sunday I'll do something for a couple of hours just to keep the, the legs loose. So it, it's, it's an incredible time commitment, you know, when you're trying to figure, when you're trying to keep a day job going with it. But for again, sure. it's, that's that's part of the appeal to it, and I'm I'm using a different guide, Mike Hermanson, who guided me through uh, Louisville. He and his wife have since had their second child, and Mike is busy raising a kid. He's still my coach, but I've, right. I've found another guide, a gentleman named Julian, who is this marvelous has this marvelous English accent, and everything is just fabulous and it's wonderful, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's a great guy. Um, yep. And so, um, you know, we, we've gone through, you know, just the different stages of really getting to where we trust each other uh, to the point that we're willing to, to do this together. And we did our first triathlon a few weeks back. We did a little sprint triathlon. We've got a three or four more before Ironman hits. 
and we did a half marathon mixed in somewhere. You forget sort of what you've done, where and when. Uh, sure. So, but he, he's he's a fantastic guy. I, I was extraordinarily lucky to end up with a, an, another really good guy. And I, I put tons of research into finding him. I, I put a post on a local triathlon board that said, basically, you all know who I am. I'm the guy that was running with Mike Hermanson last year. Mike's not doing it anymore. Who else wants to do it? <laughs> and, so, um, and had several people who at that point were interested in doing it. And for a number of reasons, Julie and I ended up deciding this was going to be something we wanted to do. I've gotten a number of guides over the years for different races, like marathons and stuff, by just throwing things out on running boards and stuff, and then just seeing what comes back. Hmm. And I'm curious, how long does it take to really develop that trust? I mean, is it just multiple, multiple, you know, times together, weeks, months, you know, talk to me about like the time frame. You know, the first time that Julian and I did anything together, we rode a tandem bike in windy, rainy conditions for about 60 miles. And by the end of that ride, you know, and he'd never ridden a tandem bike before and the roads are wet and it's nothing is ideal. By the end of that 60 miles or so, we were like, this is going to work. This is going to be fine. Um, hmm. <laughs> it, 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 I think as you do this over time, it takes less and less time. You can sort of feel in the beginning if it's going to work or not. Um, sure. And First we, impressions. Yeah. And we just, we, we immediately clicked. You know, and we, the, it, was, it was a miserable ride. <laughs> it was cold. <laughs> um, we stopped under a tree at one point just to sort of, you know, st- avoid getting soaked. You know, it was just, it was, it was just one of those, it was one of those days. And we, we really bonded at that point. And so the first time we'd ever run together was a half marathon a couple of weeks later. And we we're like, whatever, we got 13 miles to figure this out. We're not running to win this thing. We'll just see what happens. And it, 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 and we did fine. I've run races with people that I didn't know until right before the race. And in general, I just figure it will work. I've had a couple of guide experiences that weren't great, but in large part, I've had fantastic guide experiences. And the ones that weren't so great, okay, I lived. They did their best. I did my best. It, it, didn't, it didn't work out. You know, and, and that's okay. Um, you yep. I don't know. It's on, it's, it's almost like the athletic equivalent of speed dating or something. You see each other at your best and worst really quick. And as long as you can handle each other at your best and worst, you're going to be all right. Yeah. That's a great analogy right there. That's, that says, says a lot and very accurate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, I, I, you know, I've, I've had relationships where I, wasn't as close to the people that you end up being as close to when you're dieting. You you know you you see each other in all sorts of situations, um, and you have to be oh, dead yeah. honest with each other uh, about how you're doing because you're going to only do as well as the weaker link of the two of you is going to do. So true, yo. And I'm sure just the conversations you have, everything. It's you know the secrets you share. <laughs> Oh God! Yeah, you know what and, I mean. And, and the the combination, the, the conversations, you know, roam from, you know, deep and philosophical and insightful to snot rockets. Um, <laughs> yo, yo. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's you know it's the 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 athletic the the running and the triathlon. I, I think in general that people who get together to compete in these things uh, while competing against each other also really work with each other. And it's an amazing group. You know, I've, I've got a group of people who, you know, I know that I can call on if I need, you know, get my bike from place to place for races or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. It's a very supportive group. Sure. That's awesome. And uh, do you have any specific resources that you want to mention if someone is interested even in just getting more active or potentially just trying a 5K uh, in terms of finding a guide? What kind of advice could you give? 
I would get in touch with the race director and tell him, I haven't done this before. I want someone to walk with me. Don't try for any speed records. Uh, the people, 5Ks, there are people that will take over an hour to finish a 5K. And they're probably having a much better time than I ever did because I'm, I'm not very fast, but 5Ks are races where I wanted to be fast. And so I'd you know, sprint for 3.1 miles and I always felt miserable at the end of them. Um, right. I, I would get in touch with the race director and just say, I've never done this. I want to walk it. Um, well, somebody, you know, and, and maybe you get two or three people and swap off at a mile or something. Hmm. Um, the biggest mistake that people make when they decide they want to become physically active, if they haven't done things in a while, is they take on too much too quickly and it hurts and they don't go back and do it again. Start slow. Um, yeah. no, you know, no one cares. You're still going to get the shirt. You're still going to get food at the end of the race. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's all good. Um, and you will develop people that you compete with at whatever stage of the race you're at. And you will decide, I want to beat that person and they will become your goal. So get, you can Google 5Ks in your hometown. You know, if you Google 5K Sioux City, Iowa, results are going to come up. And on those web pages, you will see the race director or get in touch with the entity that's putting the race on, you know, if it's a specific church or a specific school um, and see if they'll help you uh, find a guide, get in touch with running clubs. Almost every town has a running club and just be very upfront and say, I'm, I like to join as a walker for your running club. A lot of runners aren't really runners. They're sort of plotters and that's okay. They're there for the camaraderie of it all. Uh, I got my mom to do her first 5K when she was 74, 75 years old, somewhere in there. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll tell you a funny, I think it's really funny um, story about that. She's She was running a 5K. It was the day before, I don't know which Little Rock Marathon this was for me, but it was it was not the first. And my son was running in the race and my older sister was running in this 5k and we were watching over on the side and my sister finished and my son finished and we're staying there and we're waiting for grandma. And my older sister's like, she's probably talking to people. Um, <laughs> and sure enough, mom comes around the corner and she's talking to someone near the back of the race. And my older sister just, who's competitive as all hell, just yells at the top of her lungs, shut up and run. And mom just totally ignored her. <laughs> Um, just kept going the pace. She was going and talking to the person she was talking to. Yup, yup. Gotta love it. (laughs) So that, I mean, if you're going to get into some of this stuff, there are, you know, and, and some of this stuff is, is pricey. And I say that going into it, but things like Pelotons are accessible. Uh, they, you know, they're running on Android tablets. And my treadmill is a true fitness treadmill. That uh, There's an, an app made by a company called Wahoo that's called RunFit that will keep track of how far I'm running on a treadmill at any given point. Your Apple Watch or your Fitbit can keep track of distances, although I, I don't find that the Apple Watch in an indoor environment is super reliable for distances. But who cares? You, it's going to be just as unreliable one day as the next. And so you can see if you've made progress and who cares how far you've actually gone. Um, right. Don't start out big. Start out with something that's infinitely manageable and, and go from there and, and have a good time. And I don't always remember the part about having a good time. I got really stressed out about this stuff and really uh, been out of shape over how well I'm going to do. And the fact of the matter is that on my best day, I'm going to be more towards the front of the middle you know, in my worst day, I'll be sort of towards the back of the middle of the pack. Um, and so who cares? You know, it's sure but that's that's much harder to, to do than to say. But I mean, that that's some of the stuff I would, you know, um, there are still drifting around. Uh, there used to be a there used to be blind yoga courses that you could buy that I think are still out there somewhere. And there were there was a website that had a lot of fitness courses that ultimately ended up. And when the website went out of business, uh, you could download for free. Uh, if anyone's interested in some of that stuff, you're welcome to email me at dave at speedyturtle.net. Um, I'll be happy to send you any resources that I've got. So, and the speedy turtle comes from the fact that I am speedy for a turtle. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you about that nickname. I do like that. Definitely an oxymoron, but it's funny. <laughs> you know, it's, it's about what you feel like towards the end of these things. Um, and uh, we, yep. we had, I had shirts made up before Louisville Iron Man that had my, a caricature of me on the front of it, sort of a turtle flexing its muscles. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's just become sort of a... You know, it's, it's, I'm a, I'm a legend in my own mind. Um, but I, I, I like the whole speedy turtle thing. For sure. Very cool. Alrighty. Well, again, we've been visiting with Dave Wilkinson. Uh, very accomplished, uh, I will say. Uh, very averagely accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> if you insist. <laughs> And also, you know, quite a career you've had, quite a variety and, and some big names you work for. So congratulations on all the work you've done in accessibility and assistive technology as well. Just a, a shout out to how weird things can happen to you. Um, I'm doing digital accessibility work for Hilton at the moment. And I'm doing, hmm. and, and I got linked up with Hilton precisely because I like their treadmills. And I stayed at Hilton's for years and years. And I met the director of digital accessibility at a conference I was at a couple of years ago. And without thinking, I was like, I love your treadmills. And there was this pause and she's like, what about our treadmills? Uh, <laughs> and th they have buttons. They're, they're tactile. They're easy to use. You can skip the front desk. I'm like, you, you know, you, you can have me sleep on a concrete slab for all I care. Just give me your treadmill. Um, and that is ultimately worked itself into a job where now I'm doing digital accessibility work for Hilton. So you never know where things are going to come out of nowhere and have a, you know, have a long lasting impact. I would have never thought that three core treadmills at Hilton hotels would have gotten me a job working in a career where I, I wouldn't qualify to do digital accessibility work. They hired me anyway. Now I am qualified. So <laughs> the, yeah, just once again, you never know where a simple conversation could lead. Yeah, no, you really don't. Uh, it, it's just kind of wild the way that life works that way. It's 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 messy and it's all over the place and it all sort of makes sense at some point. Absolutely. Yep. Alrighty. Well, again, uh, we've been chatting with Dave Wilkinson and Dave. Uh, just want to thank you so much. Really appreciate your time and I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, our conversation here on Eyes Free Sports. Well, thank you. And if anyone wants to know some of the apps and stuff that I use for different things and communicating with my coach, again, shoot me an email at dave at speedyturtle.net. I'll be happy to share anything that I've got as far as different apps that I use for biking and swimming and running and all that stuff. If, if, if you get into triathlons and if you, if you, if you need to keep track of your data. Excellent. All righty. Sounds great. Again, really appreciate it, Dave. Thanks so much. Thank you much. I appreciate the opportunity. Be sure to follow the Eyes Free Sports podcast at facebook.com slash eyesfreesports and on Twitter at eyesfreesports.com.